Roll Podcast. The single most powerful force for adolescent mental health is strong relationships with caring adults. Adolescence has always been a difficult phase of life, but today's teenagers are navigating a world that is vastly different from that of their parents. Teens are experiencing a mental health crisis. According to a new CDC survey, 42% of high school students reported feeling persistent sadness or hopelessness. 31% of girls and young women have symptoms of anxiety. In the decade before the pandemic, we were seeing rising rates of anxiety and depression. And then of course the pandemic did not help. So how do we equip teens emotionally with the tools they need to navigate our complex and ever-changing world? Well, here to help us answer this question is psychologist and CBS News contributor, Lisa Damore. Lisa is a Yale-educated psychotherapist with a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan, who specializes in education and child development. She is the author of three New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Under Pressure, and The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, the latter being the subject of today's exchange. Curiosity plus empathy or just empathy is, I would say, overwhelmingly the most effective and also wanted response when teenagers come our way with their distress. Today, we explore the issues that are most pressing for today's teens. We talk about the impact of social media on mental health, the pressure to succeed academically and professionally, and the struggles that come with trying to fit in and find a sense of belonging. We also look at the ways in which the pandemic has exacerbated some of these challenges and how teenagers are coping with the disruption to their lives. But most importantly, Lisa provides concrete, actionable strategies for supporting teens who feel at the mercy of their emotions so they can become more psychologically aware and, and more skilled at managing their feelings and how to approach friction at home. Lisa also provides the groundwork for initiating important conversations around risky behavior, navigating friendships and romance, the dangers of social media and many other topics. And today she's gonna tell us all about it. But first. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. So that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now 
it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. So if you're a parent of young humans trying to make the right moves, or maybe you just want to better understand how young people think and why they behave as they do, then this episode is appointment listening. But with that, please enjoy me and Lisa Damore. Um, well, Lisa, it's an absolute delight to have you back on the podcast. The first time you were on was in April of 2019. So a lot, <laughs> a lot has, has happened lot in everybody's lives, yes. uh, especially in the lives of our, our precious teenagers. Um, and so you are here today to expound upon how we can better understand our teens and guide them, parent them through what has been a very difficult period and what is a very challenging period period for teens you know throughout the history of human beings right mm-hmm. <laughs> but there does seem to have been something rather acute and different about the last couple of years that that we weathered and you know your book uh, has been an amazing resource to me as somebody who's parenting an older teen and a younger teen at the moment um, and it's that thing where just when you think you've got it figured out <laughs> something happens and you feel completely at a loss to how to you know, sort of manage the situation. And so the book has been a real touchdown for me and a great service to many people, I'm sure. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for saying that. And in getting kind of ready to, to talk to you today, <laughs> I came across the, uh, the New York Times review of your book, the first sentence of which I just have to read <laughs> out loud. <laughs> the very first sentence of the review goes like this. You know, what's enjoyable about living with teenagers? Nothing, truly not one thing. They might distract you by appearing to be deeply interesting and funny, but don't be fooled. Teenagers are diabolical. (laughs) (laughs) You might have a different lens on that, but I think that that's a very kind of common parental uh, reaction that that kind of spawns from confusion, perhaps Mm -hmm. at like, Mm -hmm. what is going on with Mm -hmm. these creatures who at one, moment not too long ago were quite sweet and now suddenly you know seem to be you know people we don't recognize anymore yeah yeah no it um it has never been easy to be a teenager or to raise a teenager and you know one of the kind of broad ways we can walk up to it is to recognize that one of our cardinal rules in psychology is that change equals stress And I think about if you put a 12 year old next to an 18 year old, right? You're not even looking at the same species anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is so much change in an unbelievably short span of time. There's no way it's not gonna be stressful for the kid who's going through it and for everyone around them. Mm -hmm. And and with that, I mean, we can kind of intellectualize that and understand that, uh, but in the, the heat of the moment when things tend to get a little chaotic, we default to you know patterns or or behaviors that are you know by and large not helpful, well intentioned but not helpful. So how do we even you know sort of embark upon you know understanding this? I mean, I would say just at the outset, as somebody who you know, I my teen years were fraught 
a lot of people's teen years were fraught. And, you know, as a parent, as I mentioned, I've got, you know, two teens now and I've got two older stepsons who are 26 and 27. So I've been doing this for a while. And, you know, I, at times I feel like I've learned a lot and I really understand this. And then other times I'm completely out of my depth. But one thing that I have developed is it's just a huge compassion for teenagers. It's just, it's so hard. And of course, the last few years have been uniquely extreme. And, uh, you know, every time I feel like I have a grip on it, uh, you know, something happens and the degree of difficulty escalates. And I, you know, I just don't know what to do. And I find myself misstepping constantly and then trying to figure out how to repair whatever misstep that I made. So I think it's, it's you know, disorienting for, for most parents. So how do we begin to kind of understand like just in, a, in, in the most general sense, what is happening with the onset of um, adolescence as our younger people enter those teen years? I mean, one of the things that was striking about your book is the neurology of, of it all and how it actually begins quite earlier than we might suspect. Yeah, so when psychologists say teenager and the onset of adolescence, we have always marked that at age 11, which is much, much earlier than people mm -hmm. tend to think. People think 13, you got till 13, teenager, and we got time. And truly papers going back a hundred years, we've marked the onset of adolescence at 11. And the reason for that is puberty is underway. And sometimes it's visible outwardly, and even if it's not visible outwardly, it's certainly underway internally. And that does change the brain. That change, changes how it operates. That changes the balance of power in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, power is increasingly distributed to the emotional centers. And um, the experience in the home is that the kid who literally yesterday would let you call them cutie patootie, wanted to go to the store with you, thought your jokes were funny, I think for a lot of parents, it feels like overnight, the door closes literally to their room. Mm -hmm. They bristle at childhood nicknames. They don't think our jokes are funny. And um, it's very, very hard not to feel both shocked by it because it happens so much sooner than is expected. And also very hard for it to not feel personal. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say that if I had to describe my work, it really is in the space between parent and teenager and a huge amount of what my work aims to do is to give the adults who care for teenagers a perspective on adolescent development that makes it clear that adolescence is not something they do to us. It's a really, really challenging phase that they are working their way through. And we're often pulled in in ways that don't always make sense or that mm -hmm. we don't feel comfortable with. Right, I think we understand that individuation is a healthy thing and this is a necessary aspect of 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 growing up and healthy in in the best way and yet it still does feel personal even when you know that it isn't and so the challenge like the jedi approach is to depersonalize everything and not allow any of this to kind of you know impact <laughs> your emotional you know kind of state of being so that you're not reactive in these situations and to have that gap that moment where you can be like oh, okay I can identify what this is it actually doesn't have anything to do with me yeah if you can do that 20% of the time you're killing it i think i think that so often it goes so fast and is so powerful i there's a section in my book called why your teen hates how you chew and and it it's about separation and individuation. And I remember having learned about these things in school. 
Mm-hmm. You know, this was part of my training. And then having my older daughter turn 13 and start to move into that phase where no matter what I did, it absolutely rubbed her the wrong way. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like the term does not do justice to how hard this is, how hard it is that when I do things that are like how she sees herself becoming, it's annoying to her. When I do things that are unlike how she sees herself becoming, it's annoying to her. Everything is annoying to her. And I think that part of what helps us to sustain people through those moments with your kid that are just, they're painful, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just in it is to really, um, I hope have some, if you feel heard in that, feel like, okay, someone gets it, that this is a really hard thing with my kid or even, you know, that common thing that happens where a kid comes home from school and you're like, how was school? And it's like nothing but complaining. Like that is so much Mm -hmm. often what happens. I think there's real value in kids being able to come home and dump all the garbage of the day. But I also think that my work is to say to parents, this is not the most fun part of the day. Like this is this is often like not the conversation we wanna have or at best sometimes just really tedious, but being present for it is really valuable to our kids, not trying to give them advice if they don't want it is valuable for our kids. I think that um, when parents know they're not in it alone, that this thing that feels so specific and personal that's happening in their home is actually happening everywhere, I think that's where I can try to communicate that information to parents in the hope that then when it's happening, it does feel a little less personal or more mm-hmm. diffused. Right. Um, a mantra that I've, uh, that I've sort of used to help me through those moments is, is understanding that, that it's my job to love my kids, but it's not my kid's job to love me, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And not looking to my kids to have any of my needs met. And I think that's a common misstep. I mean, I was parented by somebody who, who in, a, in a not so healthy way, like parented me and my sister in a way that, you know, what was paramount was making sure that her needs were met. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the, my like framework and, and DNA, like those are the buttons that are installed. And if I'm not careful, I will default to, you know, that type of behavior that I so loathed, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything I've done to try to overcome those patterns and, and not parent in that way in a weak moment, I will, I will do just that very thing. Mm-hmm. So you're self-aware, which is as good as we, is as much as we can hope for. Often. It's not always enough though. That's the you know, self-awareness will get is good, but- it's, it's a good first step. It's gotta translate into some kind of action. Yeah, but I really, I, I really believe very strongly, like there's no perfect parent and you don't need to be a perfect parent, right? I think that if parents can be observant of their own histories, observant of how it plays out in their homes, like that puts you way ahead of, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of parents. I also think that it's really, really important what you said about not looking to kids, much less teenagers for gratification. And I think what's hard is often with kids, it is enormously gratifying. It's so fun to parent kids, especially between ages six to 10. Mm -hmm. It really, it's wonderful and delightful. But I feel like if you are approaching, if your kid is approaching adolescence, and you don't have in place a way to feel good about yourself or you know proud of your you know efforts you need that before your kid hits adolescence cuz you're you're not going to get it from your kid yeah and and i um i feel for people who in taking care of their kids have given up things that they themselves really draw value from because i think when their kid does become a teenager and stops Mm-hmm. finding anything that the parent does particularly pleasant, 
they can feel pretty empty handed. Yeah, and that's they, not well, where you want to be. This is a breach of the contract. <laughs> exactly. You know, I put like, in all this time. There was a quid pro quo here. Yep. Didn't you know that we made a deal? Yep. It's like, no, we, I didn't make that deal. Yeah. Yeah. So your work historically has focused primarily on, on girls. Uh, this is different, this new book, uh, because it, it casts its gaze on, on all teenagers. So, you know, the obvious question is like, why this book and, and why now? Mm-hmm. So um, the why now and the why of this book actually have the same answer, which was two factors that came along. One was the pandemic. And that was a time where you know, the needs of all teenagers came to the fore. And I have cared for boys and kids of all genders over the course of my career, more girls than boys or kids of other genders. But it was so hard on the teenagers to go through the pandemic. And it was hard on everybody, but for teenagers in particular, they have two jobs. You know, one is to become increasingly independent and the other is to spend as much time as possible with their friends. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic undermined their ability to do either. And so I'd never seen, I mean, I've been practicing for almost 30 years. I'd never seen suffering on the scale that the pandemic brought about in teenagers everywhere. The other force that inspired me to write the book was that the cultural discourse around what mental health is stopped squaring with how we understand it as psychologists and moved to a place where A lot of the time, it seems as though being mentally healthy is equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed or happy. I am all for people having those feelings. I would like for people to have those feelings often. Mm -hmm. That does not inform how we think about mental health and psychology. It's not a good definition of mental health. And in fact, I think it actually sets up a very fragile position for parents and kids if that becomes the definition because Parent may be happy, calm, relaxed. The kid may be feeling that. Anything can come along and mess that up. And I would never want people to think that then their mental health is suddenly up for grabs, right? They may be having a very bad day, but it felt to me imperative to um, do work that helped people make the distinction between distress and a mental health concern because too often right now, those are spoken about in the same breath. Right. So two very important things, COVID, and then how we're conceptualizing mental health. Let's, I wanna get to COVID, but let's park that for now and just kind of uh, riff on, on the mental health conversation. Cause I think that's a big one. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think that there, it's a situation in which, you know, good intentions have gone awry. Like there is a mental health conversation going on right now that is helpful. People are thinking about it in ways that didn't exist prior mm-hmm. to the pandemic. Um, but the, it's a it's a situation where there are unforeseen negative consequences as a result. Uh, everything is a trauma. We're all victims. We're coddling, you know, in the Jonathan Haidt kind of you know thesis of over coddling uh, people as parents. We you know we're so fearful of exposing our children to any form of of risk or peril, and so we're hovering and. Um, you know, overly accommodating. And then, you know, these teens are then running the household. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of crazy stuff that's going on um, that is born out of this good idea of, of like, how do we protect our kids? How do we prioritize their mental health? So distress on the one hand, which you characterize as, you know, maybe difficult emotions, but, but appropriate given a certain context. 
um, that are responded to by the parent from a perspective of trying to make them go away and get you back to a place of happiness. Uh, you know, let's fix it, let's mm-hmm. fix it. There's something, if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. Uh, like what does that do to a young mind who's constantly being impulsed with this message that if you're not happy all the time, if you're not like experiencing passion and bliss and all of this, that there's, there's some kind of pathology lingering inside of you. I think what it does is it makes distress seem like the bad guy when the way we view it in psychology is that distress is integral to human functioning and for teenagers, and of course this is within limits, but for teenagers, distress is part of how actually all of us navigate the world. You know, we, we know what feels good and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so we do, you know, more of the things that feel good, hopefully, and less of the things that, you know, are having negative consequences. And for teenagers, it is also growth giving. It's actually profoundly growth giving. When I think about the kids I've worked with clinically who have gone through something really painful, and I mean gone through it, like been allowed to have the experience and find their way through, I've never seen maturation happen at so rapid a pace. And and what I mean, you know, there may be a kid who, you know, is confronted by a tragedy, something really awful happens Mm -hmm. and it's extremely painful. And we would wish that it never happened, but if they're helped through it, you end up with teenagers who are philosophical and and broad-minded in ways that you don't see usually at that age. Or um, if a teenager messes up, does something really dumb, right? Like cheats and gets caught and has to sit with the consequences at school and sit with the consequences at home. Those are the kids who in my practice are saying things to me like, I never wanna feel this way again. Like I'm gonna organize myself around not having to feel this, or this has made me think so much about the kind of person I wanna be. Mm. And so I find myself as a psychologist right now, in some ways trying to do PR for distress, right? Like it has a hugely important place really in all of our lives. And then especially for teenagers, feeling it helps them grow, helps them navigate. And then knowing that they can find their way through, developing skill sets for managing it is actually what allows them to function autonomously. Mm-hmm. It allows them to move away from us, go to places where they don't necessarily know that it's gonna go well. Because if they they consider it, they think, well, if I go, if I go there and it doesn't go well, I can handle that. Like I have it within myself mm-hmm. to manage. Whereas, you know, to answer your question, kids who feel that they can only proceed in circumstances where they know they won't be uncomfortable or they could be guaranteed that it's gonna go well, end up on these extraordinarily narrow paths, right? Because very little of life has that. Sure. So for me, I really think being able to accept distress and work one's way through it, for teenagers in particular, it's the keys to the kingdom. It is what lets them move freely into the world. Right. It's uh, it's it's similar to Susan David's you know notions around emotional resilience. Yeah. Right. Like you can't develop that type of resilience unless you allow you put yourself in a position to fail and kind of grapple with failure and learning how to move forward and all of those things, especially at that time when your brain is wiring at, at, you know, at such a rapid rate, right? Like there's, there seems to be a preciousness to this period of time where this kind of thing is more kind of mission critical than it is mm-hmm. later in life. It's hard. It's both mission critical and then also parents get really scared 
about how teenagers could derail themselves perhaps permanently. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a pretty high tolerance. Right, yeah. um, you have this phrase, uh, angst is the price of admission. Yeah. Is that, that that you came up with? Did you come up with that? I don't know that I did. Yeah, I don't know, I, I don't know where I read that, though, but, but I made a note of it here, yeah. which I think is great. Um, but yeah, for the, for the, from the point of view of the parent, it then becomes, the job then becomes deciphering what is a situation that that demands some level of intervention, and when is the when is it appropriate for me to be you know to take a step back and allow this to unfold without intervening? Yeah, no, I think it's a really tough call, and there's no perfect science to it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I have no answer that can tell a parent here's how you'll know. Um, and I think that one of the hardest things about raising a teenager is you actually cannot guarantee your teenager's safety. Like there's nothing you can do to guarantee that your teenager will not find themselves in a position that's truly dangerous. Mm -hmm. That is so scary. I can say that both as a parent and as a psychologist who cares for kids. But I also know that fear is a terrible position from which to parent. And that's something that also I think a lot right now about how hard it is to parent teenagers. You know, we have these unrelenting headlines about the adolescent mental health crisis, mm -hmm. about youth suicide. And I feel both glad that we're having the conversation and also concerned about what it feels like as a parent to be seeing those headlines all the time and how that would shape or inform reacting to even more garden variety adolescent upset. Sure, yeah, and I, I definitely wanna dig into that. But you know, in, in thinking about like the media, there was one uh, article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago that was all about um, accommodative parenting. Hmm. Did you see, do, you, do you see this article? It's like the anxious child and the crisis of modern parenting. And it's really about the fear that, that the parents have, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. when they see these statistics and like, oh my God, like all these teenage girls are, are having suicidal ideation and loneliness and all mm -hmm. this stuff. Like we've got to make sure that our kid is in there. They're transferring all of that fear and that pathology onto their, child, mm -hmm. you know, from a place again of, of best intentions, mm -hmm. but there's a whole downstream, you know, kind of negative reaction, you know, when that child is like, it makes the kid feel unsafe. And then, yep. oh, I, sh I guess I should be afraid because my parents are so afraid. And then that's actually exacerbating the situation that you're trying to, to you know, ameliorate. That's my big worry now, actually, is that the best gift we can give our kids, especially our teenagers, is to try to be a steady presence. Teenagers experience their own emotions as very, very powerful and destabilizing. And part of how they can feel more secure is if they bring their emotions to the parent and the parent can react at least outwardly mm -hmm. in a calm way. Right. And, and I think about it's analog in raising younger kids. You know how like if your toddler is running towards you and then they fall and scrape their knee, that they look at their knee and then they look at your face, yeah. right? And we're good. We're yeah, really they, good at like that they, moment. Like what, how am I supposed to feel? Yeah, how you bad tell is me. this? How yeah. bad is it? And it, we have a very powerful and helpful instinct in that moment where we usually are like, you're okay, mm -hmm. you're okay. Even if inside we're thinking, oh God, that looks pretty bad. The same is true for raising teenagers that, you know, for them, you know, a, a failed test, a you know, ruptured friendship feels disastrous. Like that's how they experience emotions. And they come home to us and they lay it in front of us. And the best we, gift we can give them is to be very empathic and very attentive to it, but not to react at that mm -hmm. at their level, much less above it. And so 
I think the challenge right now in parenting is how to have these headlines all around and try to be a steady presence in the face of what is often garden variety adolescent distress. But if this is your first teenager or you don't do this for a living, how would you know that? I think it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to break down into, into two categories. You have the teen who is on the emotional roller coaster and there's lots of chaos and, and you know, kind of externalization of, of, of emotions that get dumped on the parents. And then you have the, the, the young person that internalizes everything and says, I'm fine, goes to their room and shuts the door. So what are the differences in how you interface with those two archetypes that are on the kind of, I mean, it's all on a spectrum of mm -hmm. course, but you know, it would seem to me that there would be a differential in like how to think about and approach those two types of young people. So when I think about teenagers, I often think about them as talkers or not talkers, right? And parents in audiences, you, you can mm -hmm. almost tell by the looks on their faces, who's got which type of yeah. teenager. So there are kids who come home and share a huge amount and there are kids who come home and are very, very quiet. And that is hard on parents and it's especially hard on parents when they can tell the kid is in pain. And so what I tried to introduce in this book was how we as psychologists think about emotion regulation, which is that we think about it as a two-sided thing. There's expressing emotions to get relief from them. And there's actually reining them back in, mm -hmm. controlling emotions which we put actually on equal footing in terms of their value to overall emotion regulation, which may come as a surprise to some people because we've really moved as a culture very much to the side of like, if there's a feeling, the best thing to do is to talk about it, you know, maybe to excavate it, to talk it to death. Sometimes maybe, mm -hmm. but we actually see there's a huge wide range of other options that will really be useful. But what I can say fundamentally back to your sort of these extreme examples is, our ideal is that you see a little bit of both, both the capacity to gain relief by expressing emotions and the capacity to tame emotions when needed. And this is true both in the home around garden variety, adolescent distress. It's also how we think clinically. If a teenager is all expression, if their emotions are running the show, calling all the shots, we actually think, how do we get these more tamed? How do we get these under control? And if a teenager is entirely reserved, shut down, bottled up, we think clinically, okay, what's it gonna take for this young person to find a way to express? So most of the time, kids are actually doing a little bit of both back mm -hmm. and forth. It's not comfortable for them all the time. It's not comfortable for their family all the time, but as far as psychologists are concerned, they're doing great. Um, what we watch out for are the extremes. Yeah. So in the in the book you kind of you break this down into two different pieces. You have the 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 management of emotions and then you have the regaining of, you know, kind of control of your mm -hmm. of of their kind of emotional regulatory system or their equanimity. Um and then there's a whole kind of discourse around the, you know, in the management of their emotions, how to discern when this is healthy versus problematic. And just because a teen comes home and like dumps some crazy story on you and tells you you're horrible and slams the door, they're externalizing whatever is going on with them emotionally. That might be a healthy response to whatever is happening to not be reactive to that. Your job is to kind of, you know, be just be placid in the face of mm -hmm. that chaos as a stable force for that person and resist the temptation to 
solve the problem for the mm -hmm. child. I think that's right. But what I would say is it's important that we have parameters around how emotions get expressed. So the kid may come home and be really angry and have had a terrible day. And I would never say they shouldn't be given a lot of room to express their frustration and their annoyance, you know, with how they mm -hmm. the day went down. What we're really gonna train our attention on as psychologists is whether they express those emotions or tame those emotions in ways that bring relief and do no harm or whether there's a cost to how they're going about it. So actually, if a kid comes home and just like salts the earth at home as a way to deal with the expression of their frustration, that's costly, right? They're tearing at their relationships at home. That's not something I would wanna allow, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I'd want the parent to, you know, engage with them full blast. But I think there may be room once, you know, things have settled a little bit and cooled off to come back to that teenager and say, look, you have every right to be angry about what happened at school. Like, I agree, like that's a pretty lousy thing. You can't express it in a way that damages relationships or hurts other people and you, or you, you can't express it that way. So here's how you can express it. You can say this, this, and this, and this, you can, you know, if you wanna go out and like kick a soccer ball, if you wanna like, you know, go scream into a pillow, like you can do all these things that have no cost, but you can't come home mm -hmm. and lay waste to family life because you had a very right, bad day. Just like torch the house. Yeah. And, then, and then the half-life of these things is always pretty short. Yes. You know, then it's sort of like, <laughs> yeah. what are you talking about? Like, everything's fine. You know? <laughs> I will tell you, I think the all-time art of raising a teenager is not holding a grudge. Yeah. I think that is really, they, time is different for them. I've always felt that teenage years are like dog years, you know, like a year for us is like seven for them. I think an hour for them, us is like seven for them. So we can still be really sore about something that happened. And like, truly they are so far past it. They don't even think about what right, happened. Right, like you're still thinking about that. Yeah. Like they're on, ten, they're 10 steps <laughs> yeah. down the road, you know? So I think that if we're gonna enjoy our teenagers, which we should, I think a lot of it is saying our piece around behavior when we need to, but then meeting them where they are. And if they're mm -hmm. in a better place, like let it go, get there. What about the child who is internalizing everything, who's reclusive? You know, that often leaves the parent in a state of distress because they just, they just don't know what's going yeah. on, right? Like they may think, well, that kid doesn't seem, you know, well attuned to his mm -hmm. or her environment, doesn't quite seem happy, but we don't really know what's going on. And that can be a real a scary place for for a parent and then you know, what is the typical kind of parent response to that? Where do parents go wrong in trying to decipher that mm -hmm. and understand what's happening so that they can, you know, be of maximum service? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Sometimes I'll be with an audience and a parent will tell a story about their kid who just talks and talks and talks and complains and complains and complains. And then another parent will raise their hand and say, I wish my kid, mm -hmm. I wish my kid were telling me what's going on. Cause it is, as you describe, it's, it's worrisome to parents. So the first thing I would want to rule out, right? You know, like clinicians, so we think about like, what do you want to rule out in terms of how worried to be? So one is like, is the kid using substances? Like a lot, right? And when we think about ways that emotions get tamed, substances are extremely effective and extremely powerful. And that is one of the, you know, kind of high likelihood ways if a kid's gonna handle their emotions, tame them in a way that's gonna be costly, that's a very mm -hmm. high likelihood way to do it. So. 
first question I'd have is, you know, is a kid abusing, right? Is a kid using substances in a way that's concerning? And then you deal with that. The other way that kids tame emotions that can be very problematic over time is by sort of chronic distraction that, you know, they have an uncomfortable feeling and then they are on video games for hours. And distraction has its place in helping us maintain our emotional equilibrium. But um, some kids are working so hard to not feel things that they are constantly distracting themselves. And often technology is where this is happening. So much so that it starts to cost them in other areas, right? They're not making friendships. They're not getting their schoolwork done. So in terms of like levels of when to worry about a kid who's very reserved or not sharing with a parent, I would first, you know, worry about substances, worry about constant distraction mm -hmm. and tackle those as the problems they are. Then they're the kids who just aren't big talkers, right? They're just not big talkers or they're very private. And there are a couple of ways that parents can think about how to um, change that with their kid. One is teenagers are organized around autonomy. They wanna become increasingly independent. And so it shouldn't surprise us that they may not be in the mood, mood to answer our questions when we are asking them, mm -hmm. right? If we're at dinner like, okay, how was school? You know, what happened? <laughs> it happens all the time. The yeah. parents are like, your kid's like, fine, nothing, right? And so one thing I was so delighted to discover in writing this book is something that was happening in my home. And that I think a lot of families think is just happening in their home is that the kid who tells them nothing after school, at dinner, asking great questions, parents getting nothing, waits until the parent is in bed and then is suddenly standing there as chatty as can be. Mm -hmm. And when I realized this was like near universal, like this was happening in so many homes, I thought, okay, well, this is fascinating. And what I think is happening is the teenager is satisfying two needs at once. They wanna be autonomous, but they wanna connect with the parent. And so if they wait till we're in bed, they decide if there's gonna be a meeting, they decide the content of the meeting because they know we're not gonna bring up new topics at mm -hmm. that time and they decide when it ends. So what I would say is maybe your kid's not a nighttime talker, but I have become increasingly aware there are kids who don't wanna talk when the parent wants to talk, but they will text with the parent or they will have conversations in the car that they need a lot of tight control over the conversation in order to have it. The other scenario that comes up is that the teenager doesn't want to talk because they, the parent stepped in it. The parent did something when they did talk that made the kid uncomfortable about opening up. And when I've asked teenagers, like, you know, you know that thing where you're clearly upset and your parents asking what's wrong and, you know, you're just shaking them off, shaking them off. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what, what's the deal? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, well, there's a few different reasons. So the reasons they give me, they say, well, sometimes it's because we know what you're gonna say. So I'm upset because I messed up my math test and it's the math test that you asked me if I was ready for and I told you I was, but it turns out I was not. Mm. And so if I, if I tell you that that's the issue, I'm gonna basically get an I told you so and I don't wanna hear it, so I can't tell you. Another reason they'll give me is they'll say, you're gonna blab. Right, So I'm gonna tell you about something that's happening for me or a friend. And then the next thing I know, you're gonna be on the horn either with the school or with the neighbor or with your sister. And I did not mean for this to leave the house. Mm. And so I'm not telling you stuff. And then I thought this was so beautiful. A, a girl said to me, here's the deal. By the time I get home, I am 90% of the way over whatever I was upset about. And rehashing the whole thing from my parents is not gonna help me feel better. Mm. So. 
I think we sometimes want to be attentive that like they know us, they, we may have stepped in it. And if we have, we have to apologize and try to, you know, repair that. And I think teenagers can be pretty forgiving. You know, if you're earnestly apologetic, I think you can open channels of communication. There's so much in that. Yeah, I mean, allowing the the teen to set the parameters for these types of discussions, not trying to force them, trying to uh, refrain from judgment or you know stepping into the you know on these landmines that are are typically the things that that cut off communication, mm-hmm. right? Uh, resisting the urge to try to solve the problem or step in and intervene. <laughs> Or like <laughs> tell some story about what happened to you when they oh. you were that age, which is like the worst, <laughs> you right? Like, end the conversation. <laughs> like, I would say like, like that's the last thing they want to hear, right? When I was a teenager, is like the most conversation right. ending thing <laughs> you can possibly say as a you parent. know when I was yeah. a teenager. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I've just learned because we have a quieter child, and and it, it's funny because just the other night, like that exact thing happened, like right when I was going to bed, you yeah. know, and you have to just. Like you live for those moments yep. because you can't compel them. So you have to like be in a place of, of sort of surrender around it. And then when they happen, you, you have to have the, you like have to have the awareness like, oh, okay, it's ha- I, have to, I have to turn on now because this is a fleeting thing. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of patience. It does, it really, really does. So here's how I think we summon that patience. First of all, this is really, short-lived. And, and one of the things I'm so glad about is that I was practicing before I had kids and I had so many people I was caring for, so many parents say, oh my gosh, it goes so fast. Like they're out so fast because my personality is a bit more on the controlling side. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I were, didn't have that professional reminder all of the time of how short-lived this would be, I know I would have been like, clean up your shoes, they're in the wrong place and let me go to sleep. I mean, I know I would have demanded more in that way. And so, um, and now I have a kid in college, right? And, and it's true. And so for me in those moments where I'm like, oh, really right now, I think, mm-hmm. you know what? In three years, I would give my left arm to have you come in to talk to me, right? Like I'm not gonna know where you are <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night. So I think that helps. And then the other thing I think is more important than it's ever been is that the single most powerful force for adolescent mental health is strong relationships with caring adults. So we have to meet them more than halfway. We mm-hmm. just have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most parents are caring, but they don't know how to deploy that care mm-hmm. in, in a helpful manner, right? It goes back mm-hmm. to good intentions gone, mm-hmm. gone awry. So when they say, you know, how is school, which I do every day, like I mm-hmm. make all these mistakes. And it's very, by the way, it's very refreshing that you who spent your entire life studying this stuff still. You know, oh God, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, You know, gets it wrong. Um, but yeah, of course, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like they need to know that, that, um, that they're safe. I try to, you know, reserve judgment, like to me, maintaining that open channel of communication is the most important thing. And the minute you inject any kind of like judgment into it or, you know, attitude about like a certain behavior or thing, like that's only gonna restrict, that's gonna, like you said earlier, it's gonna make them think twice about opening up to you next time. Yeah, it's funny, the thing, you know, my favorite thing to do is to be with teenagers and just ask, you know, like, what is it adults do that don't doesn't work for you? Or what is it that adults don't understand? And one thing I've been hearing from them a lot is 
don't compare us. Don't compare us. I think so often, again, in a well-meaning way, parents are like, you know, your brother didn't do that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, why can't you be more like? Or when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. like I did it. And it just rubs them the wrong way right. so much. You know, Betty's son yeah. is doing great. Yeah. What's yeah. up with you? You know, and <laughs> and again, I'm with you. I, I don't think any parent is setting out to do wrong by their kid. Like I I think we are desperate to do right by our kids. And there is almost nothing in parenting that I would point to that is not well intentioned. But the best thing about teenagers is that they will tell us straight up what does and does not work for them. And I think we need to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked a little bit about the, the managing of the emotions part. And then there's the, the regaining control aspect. Um, how are, you know, how are teens, you know, what are they, what are they looking to, to kind of self-regulate? Like, mm-hmm. is it taking a bath with mm-hmm. essential oils or <laughs> is it, you know, going on a video game for six mm-hmm. hours or sticking their head in a bong? Like mm-hmm. it can be all of yeah. these different things, right? And I thought what was really interesting in the book was, look, uh, if a kid has a hard day and they come home and then they, there's one example of one, one teen, who then you know plays a video game for an hour or whatever, and that's what he needs to kind of like downregulate, and then he he gets what he needs out of it, and then he's ready to like focus on his homework or like you know he's okay, right? Mm-hmm. And that's very different from the person who can't stop scrolling or mm-hmm. has a you know a more malignant relationship to whether it's technology or substance or or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And so, from the parental point of view, again, it goes back to how do you discern mm-hmm. the healthy you know response versus the unhealthy one. So, there's two ways to slice this. One is we really have to be deliberate about allowing taming efforts to be seen as a healthy response at all. Like I think our culture is so much defaulted right now to if my kid's upset, the right, the script I'm operating on is they come home, they tell me what they're upset about. I give them good advice. They feel mm-hmm. better. That's the script. Yeah. Okay. It's a terrible script. Right. Or rarely, at, it yeah. just doesn't happen that <laughs> often. Right. Yeah. So the first thing we have to do is actually expand our understanding of what the options are. So ways that kids can manage a bad day that are entirely acceptable in the canon of psychological research would be coming home and rolling around on the floor with the dog for a while, right? Or coming home and going for a run because that helps them feel better or taking a shower or maybe hopping on a video game just for a little while. What we're always gonna measure is whether there's a cost associated. Right, so there's a lot of ways that kids regulate emotion that first of all, we don't even recognize and value that I think we need to. And then if a parent starts to be uncomfortable, like, I don't know, they've been on the video game for a while, right? This is going on and on. The way to evaluate it is what's the cost of this, right? Is there work they're supposed to be doing? Have they been you know, sedentary for a long time? Are they not seeing friends? And so, you know, that's, that's the measure. Like we just don't want there to be a price tag attached to what kids do. But the fun thing about caring for teenagers and getting to write about them Mm. is to really celebrate, like they're good at regulating emotion. And one of the big ones, huge in the lives of teenagers is actually music. You know, that they will come home and they'll use it both to express emotion and actually to contain emotion. So it happens all the time that if a kid is sad, like I would say most teenagers have a sad playlist. Like they actually Mm -hmm. collect this music that they will um, come home or wherever they are, they'll be sad and they will deliberately put on their sad playlist with the intention of crying alongside it 
to express the emotions so that they can get to feeling better faster. And it works beautifully, harmless, effective. The same teenager or other teenagers will sometimes actually have mood countering music. Like they'll be in a bad place or they'll have low energy. And so they have their upbeat or, you know, pump up or I had a teenager describe it as a yeah, yeah, yeah playlist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a great name. And so they, they're always using these extraordinary, you know, adaptive tools. And I think as adults, we too often miss it. And we think, why aren't they talking to us about their feelings mm -hmm. when in fact they've got such good stuff going on? How do you get them to be so open with you? Oh, well, first of all, I'm not their parent. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, second of all, they know I'm, it's time limited. Um, I also think, and I, this is, I'm sad about this. I also think it's not that often that teenagers encounter adults who are absolutely fascinated by them in a totally benign mm -hmm. way. And I hope it is totally benign, I believe it is. We're pretty biased against teenagers as a culture. Like you can say about teenagers things you could, could and never should say, you shouldn't say about teenagers, about any other group, right? I mean, people are wholesale dismissive of teenagers. You know, they're so impulsive, they're so difficult. You know, I mean, it, it's extraordinary actually what we're, we allow ourselves to say about teenagers. And teenagers are well aware of that that adults often cast a sort of, you know, unpleasant eye on them. Mm -hmm. And I am absolutely convinced that teenagers can smell at 300 yards, you know, adults who don't regard them, you know, with a whole lot of respect. And they can also smell at 300 yards, adults who, um, honestly, I just love them. I yeah, love them. It's clear. I mean, your curiosity, your fascination with them. Yeah. yeah it's very, it's disarming. Oh, well, and I think for teenagers, they're yeah. like, all right, lady, like you're like really asking. Yeah, so we like, will really tell you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Somebody just had to ask earnestly. Yeah. Right? And you like seem uh -huh. to really want an answer and you're not gonna fight us when we tell you the answer. Right. Um, I, I was speaking at a school recently to a upper school, high school, and um, I heard, I had a great conversation with the teenagers. Like we had a great time. But I heard after the fact that they were like, oh, we have a speaker. Oh man, is she gonna talk to us about social media? Like that they were just mm. waiting to just have a grown up come down on them. Like right. they're so accustomed to it. Right. Um, so we can't pivot to talk about we social can. media right now. <laughs> well, let's go back to the, uh, to, the, to the COVID thing. I mean, that was a big impetus for you writing this book. And obviously there's no, there's no shortage of press out there about what's happening with teens that is a direct or indirect result of, of lockdowns and what everyone experienced. The rates of loneliness and depression and suicide, et cetera, are like through the roof, it's pretty alarming. So how are you thinking about this? Like, give me your take on what it is that teens specifically had to endure during that period of time and the, the sort of short and long-term impact that it's having on their development. Yeah, um, I mean, it was, I had in, in my home, I had a high schooler and a elementary school student. Mm -hmm. So I was living with it in my home and the isolation alone was torture for a lot of teenagers. Um, they are just not designed to be stuck at home with their parents. It's really the opposite of what they should be doing. And we saw all sorts of things, right? Incredibly sad teenagers. We saw um, an explosion of eating disorders and huge anxiety 
that in some ways we've, we've seen the aftermath of the anxiety or the impact of that more now that we're asking kids to be out in the world, right? When kids were required to be at home, they were anxious, but they weren't asked to do anything. So their anxiety didn't actually get stirred up. But we are seeing now across like all districts, like regardless of socioeconomic status, incredible school truancy or chronic absenteeism, or, you know, you could call it a lot of things, but mm-hmm. kids just not going to school. Like that is something we are continuing to see. So there were things we know we saw in the pandemic. There's some things we know we're seeing now. So we are seeing the school truancy question. I think we're still waiting on the data on what the longer term effects will be. Um, There was a report that just came out um, that was very concerning that reported a lot of, um, it was the CDC report, a lot of loneliness, a lot of um, Mm -hmm. despair. What's tricky about that report is those data were collected in the fall of 2021. And they were asking about mood over the previous year. So when those data came out in February of this year, I went and actually looked at some writing I had done around that time in the fall of 2021 about where were teenagers. They were so miserable, like as a group, they were so miserable because what was happening for them is they were starting their third school year disrupted by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so even kids who were going back, they were often going back in masks, which they had strong feelings about. A lot of kids were really anxious about returning socially. A lot of kids were really scared about getting COVID. And even the kids for whom things on the surface looked really good, they were telling me they're gonna take it all away. Like we're gonna settle back in and it's gonna all get ripped away from us again. So I'm grateful for those data because they map on to what we were seeing at the time. And I think the thing that's so hard is there's such a long lag between the collection of the data and the release of the data. Mm-hmm. So I'm very eager to see you know, what we find out in a year because anecdotally we're seeing like in general, kids who are able to go to school and are back at school in general, like they look pretty good, right? We have kids who continue to suffer tremendously more than there were before the pandemic, but there also was suffering before the pandemic. And we have kids who without question were knocked off of their developmental trajectory by the pandemic. But on the whole, a lot of teenagers are looking like teenagers, Mm. you know, in, in the ways that I have recognized for my whole career. So we're still trying to figure it out. Right, so so that study, I mean, I saw a study recently, I don't know if it's the same one that said something like six out of 10 girls were reported being persistently sad or hopeless um, or something like 30% of teen girls had com- had contemplated suicide. I don't yeah. know if that's the same it's the one. Same study. So, it's, yeah. so it's reporting back from that period of time. So then the question becomes how resilient are they? Right. Are they bouncing back or not? Um, you know, what can we learn and what, what you know, where, where might we be going wrong by reading too much into this, I suppose. That is a worry I have, mm-hmm. which is when those data come out and a lot of the way it gets reported leaves readers with the impression these are fresh numbers. I think it's very scary to parents. And then I have concerns as a psychologist of like, well, if we, if we terrify parents, that does not actually make it easier for them to serve as a steady presence in the face of adolescent emotionality. So there's this very delicate dance of both wanting to raise awareness, making sure we are incredibly attentive to warning signs and when we should be um, very concerned about teenagers and speeding them towards care versus also not- Projecting um, all of that. Putting everybody on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, The other wrinkle to that, also has to do with gender differences, which we haven't talked about yet. 
um, in the most general sense, girls are gonna be more likely to kind of report their emotions, right? Whereas boys process these challenging times differently and perhaps are more likely to be acting out than reporting that they're anxious or depressed or, or sad, right? So that also skews the, the viability of those data points. Yeah, right. I mean, so these are self-report studies. So they're asking about distress. The girls who were surveyed reported a great deal of distress exactly what you said. We would expect to see the corollary. The, one of the rules in psychology is girls collapse in on themselves under distress, boys tend to act out. I don't know that you're gonna get a super faithful accounting all the time mm -hmm. of boys describing all of the ways they were hard on their family or the people around them as an expression of distress. And so um, the girls do come out looking pretty bad relative to boys, but I'm not sure that's a very um, detailed or subtle or nuanced picture of what was happening for boys mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who also can mask their sadness just by withdrawal. Right, but even under the most kind of liberal or generous you know, review of that study or those data points, it's clear like, it's not great. Like, no, it's not great. You know, no matter how you split it, like it's a shit show yeah. and we should be paying attention and trying to understand what was driving that and how to, you know, kind of course correct that, right? Yeah. Like similarly, you know, we had a 15, uh, now 15, who, 13 year old, and it was really hard, yeah. really hard, yeah. like very lonely and very difficult. And of course the isolation is gonna drive more screen time, yep. more social media usage, which is then, you know, compelling that person to be in that mode of comparison and, these people are living their lives this way, but I'm over here. And like, that's driving low self-esteem. Like there's, you know, there's a lot going on there, right? So social media is not um, benign yeah. in any of this. So how do you wrap your head around that? Or, or, you know, speak about that when you go out and talk to kids in schools and in your counseling? So the social media research is complicated. The views on it are complicated. Um, Here's my take on it. I have a lot of thoughts about it, but here's some. One is when I think about kids in the pandemic and social media, part of me is like, thank goodness they had a way to stay plugged in. I mean, can you imagine if during our own adolescence, we were stuck in the house like we were and like- Three channels. Three channels <laughs> and one phone line, yeah. right? I mean, that would have been even worse, I think mm -hmm. in many ways. So their ability to stay connected had value. The thing that make, made me nervous and continues to make me very nervous about social media is the algorithm driven nature of what kids are presented. And so that anything a kid, I think most people know this, but I think it's still worth articulating, actually anything a kid or that we spends time looking at or searches for or likes or comments on, the algorithms driving these um, social media platforms will pick that data up and then present them more of that in the aim of getting them to not be able to look away. And what I think about with those algorithms are norms, that teenagers are very vulnerable to the norms in their environment. And so when I think back to the, like the eating disorders finding where mm -hmm. we just saw so many eating disorders in the pandemic, there's a pretty decent consensus that probably what drove a lot of that is that we have kids who are home, they have tons of time on their hands, they have tons of like energy to do something. So they do a little searching for fitness or, um, weight control or whatever, the algorithms pick this up and start flooding their feeds with um, imagery related to dieting or advice on dieting. 
And in the absence of leaving the home, doing other things, looking at other people, this becomes the norm. And it no longer seems strange to, you know, ultra diet, do things that are actually really, really dangerous. And so when I worry about social media, what I worry about is that it can shift the norms for kids and change what they think to be typical. And so um, there were a couple of situations that I was aware of clinically where it was actually the older sister who went to parents about, I think it was in both cases, a 13-year-old boy saying, you all need to know he went down a white supremacy rabbit hole mm -hmm. and is way down it. And the parents like didn't know, hadn't, didn't really have a way sure. to know. But for these boys who are home, nothing else going on, this becomes normed and things that should be horrifying start to just become kind of standard. Right, gets normalized. Yeah. Yeah, it's really scary. Uh, you know, obviously in the, in the teen girl context, it's issues around body dysmorphia, et cetera, you know, that can be quite pernicious. Um, but there's something particularly scary about the lonely, disenfranchised young male teen who, you know, is looking for an identity and is vulnerable um, and stumbles upon, you know, whether it's Andrew Tate or some, you know, some other kind of emblem of toxic masculinity that that is then telling that person, you know, something that's that's nourishing them in a negative way, unbeknownst to oversight or parents or anything like that. I mean, this is pervasive, right? Yeah. And you know, that young person who can kind of unbeknownst to, to you know their parents or whoever for a period of time is down a certain kind of rabbit hole like that. This is this becomes a very volatile, you know, potentially dangerous situation. It's not, like Scott Galloway talks about this all the time. Like that, you know, the 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 lonely young man can be a very dangerous thing, and and there is a, a certain type of crisis around that right now. Yeah, no, we're worried about that, mm -hmm. and and yet in the spirit of not terrifying parents and leaving it there, you know, one of the things I would say is make sure you know what's on your kid's for you page of TikTok, right? I mean, that there are ways for parents to acquaint themselves with it's, what's That's become, tricky though. That, I know. Gets, that is very, as a, yeah. <laughs> like I can tell you, yeah. you know, yeah. there's all kinds of Finsta accounts yep. and like, you yep. know, multiple accounts. Like I, you know, it's very hard yeah. for a parent yeah. to like delicately dance around that. Like you want your child to have some autonomy and and, you know, respect their privacy, not be invasive while also being able to kind of monitor that is easier said than done. It is true, it is true. The other thing I would say is delay, delay as much as you can on social media. Um, when I talk with high schoolers, they're like, we're not the ones you need to be worried about, it's the seventh graders. And mm. I, I think that's often- Why is that? I think that they're, you know, seventh graders are, you know, 12 to 13, they're very concrete in their thinking. They're not necessarily able to stand back from what they're looking at and wonder mm -hmm. like, what is behind this or why might this be happening? I don't think it's true that the high schoolers are entirely insulated from it anymore, but I also take them at their word that if you, you know, if you really wanna worry about this, like you should be worried about the seventh graders or the eighth graders who are going down these roads. And one thing parents can consider is when kids are asking for access, a lot of times it's so they can stay connected and be connected. And a lot of times having the ability to text their friends will go pretty far for a while. That when we give kids technology or we give kids phones, I don't think parents should feel like they hand over the whole thing at once. Mm -hmm. um, you can give 
I have given a young teenager a phone that has no browser, no social media apps, the ability to text and ride that as long as you can while the brain is developing and perspective is coming mm -hmm. in. Yeah, you talk about this in the book, like the young person is so desperate to get <laughs> onto these social media apps that you're in a position of power to dictate terms, right? You're like, okay, well, we'll do that, but then I'm gonna have to be, I'm gonna have to have the login credential. And yep. so like, they'll agree to that because they wanna, they wanna be on online so badly. Absolutely. I miss that whole boat, by the way. Well, but, a lot of parents yeah. do, right? I mean, it's mostly it's a hazard to be a psychologist parent. Occasionally though, it gives me the leg up, right? Because I've seen these things before I have to do them in my own home. And, and I think truly what it is, is that kids wanna be able to show their friends they have the device. I mean, often like that is mm. more powerful than I think a lot of adults realize. And so you truly can say, all right, you want the device, you can have the device, you know, and it will have all these parameters around it. And it also will not go in your bedroom, all right? That's, that's a great one to start with. Um, and if you can ride that all the way through high school, that is fantastic. Hard but to, if you, but if yeah. that has already been breached, good luck reversing it that. It is very hard to, it is very hard to get that horse <laughs> yeah. back in the barn. I, I, I yeah. will be the first to admit. So all those parents of younger kids out there, this is a great rule to start with yeah. as opposed to try to implement later. Um, and kids will agree to anything to get their hands mm. on the device. So make the most of your leverage in that moment. Yeah, it, it, to, I often think about, the ratio, like it's, it's, it's how you interface and use these things, right? Like, are you using them to create or to consume? Like mm -hmm. in a very binary sense, like are you like on Photoshop and making cool mm -hmm. photo, you know, sharing, making videos that you can share? Is there some kind of creative stimulation aspect to it where you're contributing or are you just receiving and consuming? Um, and then beyond that on, you know, the kind of social piece, I found to your point about, how teenagers are so creatively adaptive, like during the pandemic. And even now I found like our kids will just have FaceTime on with their friend and like, they're not, it's just on yeah. in the room while they're doing homework or doing yeah. whatever else. So they feel connected to somebody else, even though they're alone in their room and maybe they'll talk to each other here and there, but it's just like this idea, like, oh, we're, we're together, even though we're not together. Yeah. Like what, like, that's a use case that I don't think any adult would have ever conceptualized, but I think that's a pretty common thing now, right? Absolutely. Which is cool. Like, I think that's a good, like that's a cool workaround for that piece of technology. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very sweet. I know a lot of kids who study that way, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, um, I've entertained it myself at times when I, you know, you have a big bunch of work and you feel sort of isolated with it. If, there, if you weren't alone, you know, you'd feel better. It, it's an interesting, I'll tell you where it takes a very interesting turn is um, it makes, it can make adolescent romances very wall to wall. You know, that when teenagers are dating one mm. another, um, it's not uncommon for them to wake up, text each other, good morning, have each other on all the time, be in constant contact. I mean, honestly, vastly more connection than I have with my own spouse in right. terms of just like-, like <laughs> right. sounds terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> well, they like it. Uh -huh. But then what's interesting is if the relationship ends, I mean, the size of the hole it leaves in the young person's life is just enormous yeah. because they have had such pervasive connection. What about the notion of you know, group identity and the politics around that. Like, I just can't fathom being a teenager and being able to know what everyone in my class is doing all the time. 
you know, whether I'm included, whether I'm disincluded, and if I'm disincluded, being able to like see them out in the world doing that thing that I wasn't invited to do. Mm-hmm. And then in the comments section, everybody, you know, taking others down a peg and the bullying that happens there. Like it just sounds horrific. I know. I know. I don't you look at that and think, oh my, we were so lucky. hundred percent. Right? So lucky. Like we were just naive to all the things we weren't invited to and the psychic pain that that must yeah. cause. And you must see that in your practice every day. I do. And I truly will say, you know, it's interesting. There are things that we can collapse that we don't want to collapse. So we don't want to collapse social media or technology. Cause like you say, like these have a lot of facets that are interesting and often adaptive for kids. And we also don't want to collapse teenager because truly 12, 13, 14 is so different from 16, 17, 18 in terms of their ability to navigate these things. Mm. So where I would say the really exquisite pain around what you're just describing, that's younger teens, 12, 13, 14, um, because they are still working so hard to establish identity and they are still trying to figure out where they fit in and they don't have that solidified usually yet. And so it is exquisitely painful and they are watching that so, so, so attentively. Whereas typically, and this is a little delayed by the pandemic, but it's, it's I think coming back to more the norms we've known before. By sophomore year, 15 years old, kids tend to be like, nope, I know who my friends are and I know what we're up to. And I'm not so anxious about what everybody else is doing. Mm. And so just in terms of trying to, um, narrow the scope of when parents wanna be really attentive about this or when they wanna worry or when they wanna to try to delay, delay, delay on access. It's not all of adolescence. It's, mm. it's, I would say through seventh, eighth, maybe early ninth grade where that is the hardest. Mm. I'm just imagining the marginalized kid who isn't invited then goes home and compulsively goes online to see, to kind of bear witness to the thing yeah. that he was you know, disincluded from. And that only feeds like a deeper sense of of insecurity and and you know uh, lowering the self esteem, et cetera. And you know, yes, as you get a little bit older and you kind of emerge out of that, but that's going to calcify, right? And then that's going to become very difficult to repair once that sense of self identity kind of cements. It could be. It could be. Whereas prior to that, sorry to interrupt, but like prior to that. Yeah, they're disincluded, but they go home and they forget about it because they have other things that nourish them outside of the classroom. But yeah. to your point earlier, like you're never away. Like yeah. you're you're always connected. You're always on. Yeah. And that piece, I mean, it's just so much information, right? To try to metabolize and take in. Um, what I will say is thank goodness for the kids you're describing. We are now back in a position where there could be activities that that kid could be participating in, things that could be set up in terms of after school. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's not going great with the peer landscape at school, but then I would say, get that kid busy with other things, mm-hmm. right? That they need to be in traffic patterns where they're around other kids, where they may find other friends. Um, and part of what was so horrible about the pandemic is that all of that went away. And the other thing that went away that we don't talk about nearly enough is that Part of what is so important for teenagers is actually connection with caring adults outside the home. That so much of what's good for teenagers happens with like the fabulous teacher or the fabulous coach or the great boss or whatever. 
And teenagers lost all that too in the pandemic. And so when we're looking for explanations of where things went awry for teenagers, that's one that I think like deserves a lot more consideration mm. than we've given it. Yeah. I think that's a really important point that the impact of, you know, coaches, mentors, teachers, like it takes a village kind of thing. And even before the pandemic, you know, we have seen the, you know, kind of exacerbation of, of isolation, the dissolution of the kind of village notion mm -hmm. of, you know, how we live. And, you know, certainly in Los Angeles, it's so mm. dispersed. The notion of community is theoretical at best. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, a general kind of denigration of that notion that COVID, you know, and the lockdowns and all of that just exacerbated. And now even on the other side of it, we still haven't, um, I mean, we're still kind of in the wake of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like still, it's like, well, we'll Zoom for that yeah. instead of go to, per like we've acclimated to certain lifestyle habits because of that experience. Um, that I don't think are necessarily all that healthy and definitely not in service to the young people. I think that's right. So then if we think about, okay, well, so there's an opening. You know, I think about all of us looking at these youth mental health headlines, worried about the crisis. And what I would say is, even if you're not yourself raising teenagers, you can help with this, right? That there are ways in which adults can make meaningful connections with teenagers, either through mentorship or mm -hmm. you know, being a great boss or being an incredible neighbor or an incredible uncle, right? I mean, sometimes teenagers will have like really powerful relationships with family members who aren't their parents that will help them through incredible things. Sure, they, they need that because they can't hear it from their parents. No. Like the parents are not supposed to be the people who are kind of, let me, let me sit you down and give you the life advice. They, they don't wanna hear it from their parents, but no. they will hear it from that other, elder that they sort of respect and, and, and maybe revere who just has that ability to connect with them that a parent you know, will never be able to have. Yeah, no, I, I would say a huge percentage of my clinical work is saying the exact same thing that the parents themselves would say or have said. But they can hear it from but you. But they can get it from yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm like, I'm sorry that I need to charge you for this because uh -huh. you are covering this at home, but this, yeah. That's a lot of the work. Yeah, and 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 when those moments arise, and the and and the kid is talking to you, you know, another mantra that I always use is just tell me more. Like yep. instead of let me tell you how to fix this, or I can't believe you did, like judgment, like we're, mm -hmm. you know, like not trying to solve the problem, not telling them what they did wrong, but just oh that must be hard. Like tell me more about what that must be like. Like if I can, and I'm not saying I'm great at this, but when I can do that, like that seems to be something that will you know, create a little bit of a safe zone that will make the kid open up even a little bit more. Yeah, I'll tell you my version of that is I, um, I always work with the assumption that teenagers have two sides, that they have a, you know, the side that maybe did the dumb thing and it's impulsive and maybe immature and you know, maybe self-centered. And they also have a side that is philosophical and broad-minded and you know, an excellent self-advocate and deeply thoughtful. And so even when a kid is telling me about something that feels, you know, like they should totally not have done that or, you know, like it was just a really bonehead move. One of the ways I'll try to engage it is I'll try to talk to the broad-minded side about what happened. Like, gosh, that's so not like you. Like, what do you make of that? Like, how do you understand that you, you did that? 
And and I find they usually rise to it. Like the, the side of the teenager you talk to is the side you end up in conversation with. Mm. So if you come down on them like, what was that? Well, then you're gonna get, you know, they go, you don't understand. And you know, that that reactive part of the teenager. And if you, even if you don't see it, if you talk to that vastly more mature side, it will usually show up. Mm. And how do you how do you balance that against the idea that you know, young people need guardrails. They mm-hmm. wanna, you know, they feel more secure when they know there are rules and mm-hmm. there's, you know, ramifications for breaking those rules. Mm-hmm. And not that anybody should be some kind of rigorous taskmaster, mm-hmm. but there is wisdom in kind of reinforcing some kind of framework around what's okay and what's not. And there's, you know, there's ramifications for those breaches. Um, I think they can live side by side. So when we look at the research and when we distill all of it on like what kids need at home, it's two things. They need warmth and they need structure. So I think you can actually bring both. So say a kid does something really that they should not have done. You can have the structure of saying, all right, that comes with consequences, right? Mm-hmm. You, broke, you know, it's a breach of trust. We gotta be able to trust you to let you go out and about. So you will be hanging out with us for the next couple of weekends. And then the warmth can come and be like, what happened? <laughs> like. That's so not like you. Mm. Like, it's not an either or. Um, right. And and I would just say, you know, if parents are like, where am I supposed to be in all of this? If they just keep going back to that idea, you want to be warm. They want to. You want to feel. You you want your kids to feel that you both love them and also actually like them. And you want to have structure that there should be a predictability to family life. That the rules should make sense. That the rules should be enforced. That kids are going to know what's going to happen. Mm. And kids do like rules. Teenagers do like rules. They don't like loosey-goosey adults. Um, I think all the time about moments in my practice where a teenager would float in front of me something like, um, oh, you know, we were over at Susie's house and Susie's mom will buy for us. And they put it out in this way, like, you know, and I would go, really? And they go, I know, it's so weird. I don't know why she does that. And and I've learned that they'll often um, present something kind of neutrally to like check to see how you respond. Mm. And even when they've seemed to be neutral to like positive about it, if I've stayed with my gut and been like, what? They're like, thank you, mm. <laughs> right? They're so glad. I think of another example, I was caring for the kid of a pediatrician in my community and it came up that she was, Having, her boyfriend was staying overnight in her bedroom and they were in high school. Which, so in America, like that's not really very typical. And, and I said, oh, your folks are okay with that? And she said, I know, I don't know why they are. You know? mm. and, and she had presented it like, um, yeah, this is just kind of happening. And when I called the question, she, she, it turns out she was asking me a question and telling me about it. Mm, that's super interesting, wild. Yeah, the best thing, here's the thing about teenagers. They are like so able to detect dishonesty and hypocrisy, like so much better than at any point in life, like better than kids, better than adults. And they really, really respect honesty. Like they really respect it. And so sometimes if I'm doing an intake with a kid who's in my office because they've gotten themselves in trouble with drinking or something like that, I will say, are you worried about your drinking? Like that's usually how I'll start by asking. And sometimes kids will say, actually, yes, you know, and then we're off to one conversation. And sometimes they'll say, no, or I don't know. And I will say, I don't know yet how I feel 
about your drinking. I'm just going to keep you posted. But based on what you're telling me, I'm not so sure that this is working for you or that this is safe, what you're describing. And I'm amazed by how accepting they are of that. Mm. Like they would so much rather you play your cards face up, even if they don't like your cards, Mm -hmm. than have it seem like you're bluffing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the bullshit detector is super finely tuned. (laughs) <laughs> you know, at that age, and uh, is very strategically and effectively weaponized against the parent <laughs> at at just the right time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they know exactly because no parent's perfect, right? And and teenagers are paying attention, and they know a lot more about how you who you are and how you behave than you might realize. And uh, you know, don't 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 uh, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And so when you know the parent comes down on the teen, don't be surprised when the barb that comes back is just, you know, absolutely savage. Yeah. And and dead on. Mm-hmm. That's, right, that's what makes savage it, yeah. in, in the most honest and like insightful way. Yeah, that no, will it can bring be you to your knees. <laughs> it can be, it'll be brutal. And, <laughs> yeah. and I have in myself. I'm compulsively honest. Like uh-huh. I, I just like I can't. And I think that's why I like teenagers because I feel like if I'm doing right by them, like if 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 they feel like I'm mm-hmm. I'm all right by them, then I I feel like that I must be right on the right. That's like that's a very insightful thing to understand, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, they, they have very high standards mm-hmm. um, and you can lose their faith quickly. Um, but it was interesting. I, I was at a school where I was asking kids what they wanted me to tell my, their parents when I met with their parents later in the evening. And they said all sorts of things that I thought were fair and I was writing them down. And one kid said, could you tell my parents to please remove all the screen time restrictions? And I said, yeah, I'm not doing that. And she was like, okay. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, like she would have really thought less of me if I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah well, I gave it a shot. Yeah, I was like, right. and she was like, okay. Right. And, and, and so I, I encourage people to just play their cards mm. face up with teenagers. One final thing I wanted to ask you about the COVID stuff before we move off of that completely is, something I've noticed around just how teens are, are kind of processing and dealing with a low grade kind of chronic fear. Like if COVID did anything, it kind of taught young people like the world's a scary place, you should be afraid. There's this invisible thing out there that might harm you and you need to wear masks or stay at home or stay away from people. And then on top of that, you know, policy decisions that were controversial and you know maybe we can't trust adults to do the right thing and it creates a very insecure kind of unstable perspective of the world as your mind is developing mm-hmm. and the kind of um, you know residue of that i think still persists like you know there are kids who even now it seems relatively safe or, you know, like, but they, they insist on wearing masks mm-hmm. when they're outdoors and things like that. And I was like, what is going on? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. this is like not a healthy, you know, way to kind of navigate the world thinking that a terrible thing could happen at any moment and we should all be very afraid all the time. Like that has to be the mentality that would drive that kind of behavior. Yeah, I, I mean, I really don't know that we've wrapped our heads around how the pandemic rocked us. And I think actually for a lot of people, it was a real loss of innocence, you know, around like how the world operates. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think so, so, you know, if we think back to like, I'd place it around March 13th, 14th of, of 2020, when you were living your life one way, one day, and then mm-hmm. completely upended right. the next. 
So I think it has jarred teenagers. And I think um, there are kids who started to use avoidance and withdrawal as a way to manage that distress and that stuck. And then that can happen. Avoidance feeds anxiety. The more you avoid what you fear, the more you become afraid of it and continue mm -hmm. to avoid. But I think there's also something even bigger than that, which is teenagers, like they follow the news. And unfortunately for them and for all of us, the news is with us now all day, every day. And they think about things like climate change. They think about gun violence a lot. There are a lot of kids who are really anxious every day in school because of fears around guns. Um, and and I know there's questions about like this mental health concern, the you know, rising mental health concerns we're seeing. And is, is it the sort of the times and has it made? And people will say, well, but there was like, you know, we grew up in the Cold War where there was always this sense of like, you know, possible nuclear war. Right. And then there was the World War II before that. And I think, and so people will dismiss the kind of, you know, doomy explanation for why teenagers are distressed. But I think like, okay, but when I was a teenager, the Cold War came to mind every once in a while, mm -hmm. right? If I happened to read a paper about it, catch a new, it wasn't Except all my- Except when the day after Oh, that was horrible. Which like, is the worst and, and I'll made, never forget that. But okay, so that was a single exposure yeah. to media about it. And it, like the jarring impact it had on us, right? Whereas kids now are- All day long, all day every long, day. All day long. When I say to teenagers, here's what you need to understand about why this is so stressful for you. I said, it used to be that there was the morning paper and the evening news and nothing in between. And they can't even believe it. And, and what a gift that was too. So I think that there's both the jarring reality of having a virus upend our lives, which is not something any of us, I mean, we knew theoretically, but like it was like Hollywood movie. It mm -hmm. wasn't a real thing. But I also think we have to acknowledge that there are very frightening things that teenagers, I think in particular feel saddled with like school violence and also the climate crisis as it unfolds that they also are confronted with a lot in a given day. Yeah, it is a lot. And it's the persistent nature of it. Yeah. Like it's just dripping into their awareness constantly yeah. all day long. And they're fed by algorithms that are that are you know prioritizing extreme hits like that. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, um. So what do we do? So part of what I think is there have to be parameters around how much kids have their phones, right? And so this is why I love not having them in bedrooms if you can set that up. Why I love it when kids are busy, not overscheduled, but busy, you know, doing stuff that just has them engaged, has them in theater groups, has them in sports, has them making things, has them helping in the community. We're not getting rid of technology in kids' lives. I think the goal so much in parenting is to make sure that it doesn't dominate a kid's mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I loved that you initially ask um, a kid who comes into your office is how you're sleeping, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. before we even do anything or talk about anything, like what does your self care look like? Like, are yeah. you even able to, you know, be present with me? Cause you're not, are you overlooking like one of the most fundamental things about just being okay in your body? Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I'm almost hesitant to talk about sleep because I think everybody knows it. We've all heard it. We know we're supposed to do it. And yet, the data on it are so ridiculously clear about it being the glue that holds us together. And in that story in the book, you know, it's about a kid whose best 
best friend has been killed in an accident. The kid is devastated, of course, and there's going to be a lot of work to do to help him through. But I have learned clinically that when people are in crisis, especially, I will start with the question of sleep. And if they're sleeping, we will get down to work on working through the crisis. And if they're not sleeping, I will get down to work on figuring out how to help them sleep so that we even have a chance Mm -hmm. of getting them through. And I think that um, this is something that we underestimate. And one of the questions that comes up a lot now is like, what about kids where they can't get care? Like they actually need care and they can't get care. And it's getting better, but it's still not great. And part of what contributed to the adolescent mental health crisis was both the surge in need and the reality that caring for teenagers is a highly specialized field. Very few of us do it. And it's basically impossible to scale up the workforce. And so Mm -hmm. the two together made for a really tough situation for teenagers. So there have been a lot of teenagers on wait lists. There still are a lot of teenagers on wait lists. And what I'll say to parents is, look, it's not a substitute for therapy, but make sure your kid is sleeping, make sure your kid is physically active, make sure they're eating well enough, have them do purposeful things, put them in positions where they're doing service or activities. These things don't take the place of a really good clinician doing really good work, but they go very, very far, often in both reducing mental health concerns and certainly in helping to prevent them. Mm -hmm. It's the low hanging fruit. I mean, if I'm not sleeping or I'm not exercising or eating right or hydrating or doing any number of those things, I'm gonna feel depressed and like shit. Absolutely. So we can go down a therapeutic rabbit hole, but like fundamentally, like if you correct those things, I'm not saying it's gonna solve somebody's you know, mental health crisis, but at least it will get you to some kind of baseline so you know what you're dealing with. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, I, and what I love about that is, first of all, we know it's true. Like the data are so clear. And second of all, it is what parents can do at home. The parents don't have to feel helpless mm-hmm. when their kid is suffering. It's hard when the phone's in the bedroom though. Yeah, I know. Some I know. late nights. Okay, so let's, let's, let's hit this on. Let's hit this head on. <laughs> yeah. If you're like, but my kid already has the phone in the room. Right. I gotta get it out. Like, what can you try? Let me give you some suggestions. No overpromising here, but some suggestions. I think first of all, none of us should have our phones in our rooms. I don't have my phone in my room. And so one thing a parent might do is to say, okay, we're making a family-wide rule. Like it's all coming out for all of us. And of course the teenager will be like, no, 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 no. And the parent might consider saying, look, it's bad for our sleep, it's bad for your sleep. Sleep is the glue that holds us together. For us to take it out of our room and not ask you to do the same, it'd be like we got in the car and we put on our seatbelts, but we don't ask you to put on yours. Mm -hmm. So you can make that case. The other thing to try, and again, I- Um, Does that work? Well, I'm offering these humbly. I'm (laughs) offering these because I actually, it means enough to me that I Uh don't wanna just write it off. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing to try is to say, let's just do a two to three week experiment. Like sometimes teenagers will agree to an experiment. Like let's take it out of your room for a couple weeks. And here's a clock radio to replace all of the Mm -hmm. things that you feel that it does. And then see if after a couple weeks, there's not some agreement around this. Here's the other thing, teenagers like to know the why. And this is again, back to the bullshit detector. Like they like to know the why. Here's the why. Because I said so? No. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't work? That will work, no, it'll work up to age 10. But now we're talking teenagers, (laughs) right? So here's the why. We have data showing that you do not actually get as good a sleep in a room with technology in it 
And the reason for this, that the researchers surmise, and I think this is true, is that we are all so Pavlovianly attached to our devices that if they are present, we are deploying a degree of energy to not engage with them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I have such a vivid memory of having of becoming aware of this when my one of my daughters was in a preschool. Well, they were both in this preschool. I don't remember which kid it was. Where part of the weighed in for the preschool was there was a period of time where the parent was in the room with the child, but you know, kind of reading quietly in a corner. And I would have my phone with me almost all the time. I knew it was tacky to look at it, so I wouldn't look at it, but I could feel myself resisting Mm. the impulse. And one day I left it in the car by accident. And I remember sitting in the room with her and being aware of how how much more deeply present I was in the room because I had no option of touching my phone. Right, it removes that decision fatigue. Yep, is there. And so researchers think that even while we are sleeping, if there is a nearby phone, a piece of our energy is being deployed on not engaging with that thing. And so we do not sleep as well. That's equal parts depressing <laughs> that we're, we have a lizard brain like that <laughs> and uh, also alarming. I mean, it's a, it's a testament on just how powerful yep. they are, right? Yep. Um, that's crazy. Well, that's good advice. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about dadding, mm-hmm. being a dad. Mm-hmm. I love that you address this in the book. Um, you know, of course I'm a dad. Uh, it's to my mind, a little bit confusing about how to be a dad today uh, because cultural mores have shifted quite a bit. So the model of like, you know, the generation that preceded us, like what my dad, you know, embodied as a father figure is now very different in terms of like expectations. You have to be, you know, you don't have to be the provider, but there's sort of a, you know, oh, I'm gonna provide for my family and I'm gonna be the head of household and I have to be, you know, strong and firm, but I also have to be emotionally available and I have to be able to go to all the school activities at Tuesday at one o'clock in the afternoon. And it, it feels like you, you kind of have to be all things all the time, all at once, which, you know, as somebody, I talk to a lot of dads and I think there's a lot of dads who are confused about how to fulfill all of those buckets mm. and be an effective dad to a teenager. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because on the one hand, I hate the sense of anyone feeling so spread thin, right? Or having such a sense of like so much all at once and and, and a really um, strong sense of obligation to try to meet it all and, and be so good at it. On the other hand, a way we could turn this a little is like how wonderful that dads are now under the umbrella of also being in the nurturing role. You know, how sad that there was a period where dads were at, were not included in that tent, you know, of being a nurturer within the family. And what I would say is, again, our kids are not in the house that long. It's short, it's really short. And I I have a pretty high tolerance for the idea that in the 18 years or so that they're living in our homes, we're gonna be spread pretty thin. And it's easier, I think, to tolerate that if you're like, this is really time limited. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not doing this this long. And then if there's a day where any parent of any gender is feeling like 
I didn't bring my A-game at every single thing. What I would say is warmth and structure, those are the two things we're trying to provide. I don't think you can get, get an A-plus on both on any day because often you're doing one or the other. They're trading off against each other a little bit. So if you can go for like a B, B average, B minus average, B plus average, like on your warmth and on your structure, your ability to be present and engaged in a loving way with your kids, your ability to help create a predictable environment, kids will do the rest. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think one of the coolest things about my job is that sometimes I will, in school consultation work, I'll know a kid for a long time and then I'll meet the parent and I'll be like, wow, this kid is doing so well in light of who these parents are. Right, right. Like, that's a recurring theme in the book too. Yeah. It's like you meet with the kid and the parents are all freaked out and you're yeah. like, actually the kid's got this dialed and like you people are the ones who need to get your shit together. A little bit sometimes. Yeah. And so what I hope parents take away from that is like a sense of reassurance of like, really? Like kids bend towards health. Kids are often fundamentally uh-huh. adaptive, or if they're not getting it at home, they will get it somewhere, right? I mean, so many of us thrived in homes where life at home wasn't what it was supposed to be, but we found fabulous teachers or fabulous mentors. So I know for sure that guilt does not improve parenting and fear does not improve parenting. Mm-hmm. And so if those of us who are raising teenagers can try to keep those two things under control, we'll just do a better job. Mm-hmm. I think I'm like, I have an inner teen because I do the best that I can as a dad. And then I misstep and I fuck and like, oh, I didn't handle that great. And then I go on Instagram and I scroll through and I, you know, and I see like, there's a lot of super dads in my feed <laughs> who are, you know, who, who, who post reels of them being amazing dads, doing amazing things. And then I feel like shit. I feel like terrible okay. dad. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I'm doing the thing that I'm like in my, you know, I'm like trying to get my teen to stop doing, you know? I'm no better than any, any None of None of us are. Okay, but so then again, like. Comparing myself. What a great way then to have a conversation with a teenager about it, right? That we're not above the exact same thing that we're wishing they would do less of, right? Mm. And that's how you actually have an effective conversation with them. I I talk about this in the book, like having a conversation with a group of teenagers where I was like, oh man, you know, my relationship with social media, like it's like a slot machine. Like I'll go on and sometimes like I get lucky and I find Mm -hmm. something that makes me happy. And sometimes I go on and there's something that makes me miserable or often I go on and like, I'm just scrolling and scrolling and I don't wanna know what I'm looking for and I'm not finding it and I'm wasting time. I find those conversations with teenagers are the most fruitful conversations with teenagers because we are bearing the reality that we all struggle to manage these technologies well. And then you can actually have a real conversation. Yeah, Um, I liked how in the book, you kind of address trying to establish parity between parents in terms of emotional availability, right? Like Mm -hmm. this idea that, you know, one kid, a kid will like pivot to one parent, like this is the person that I can open up to, but I can't to the other person. And then that creates all kinds of like communication confusion and uh, it's sort of destabilizing. And, and, and I know that like, you know, it's, there's something, there's gonna be natural aspects to that. Mm-hmm. But as a dad, like trying to make sure that my kid knows that I'm available for mm-hmm. that and, and trying to find ways of, you know, getting in mm-hmm. so that they feel safe talking to me just as much as they would their mom. Yeah. Um, and not always being successful at that, but that was helpful. 
Good. I mean, it, you know, there's always division of labor in families. That's okay. Um, what I was kind of new to me in the research as I was working on the book was especially in what you're describing about the importance of dads being available to boys to mm-hmm. talk about feelings. And, you know, we know that boys are socialized to not talk about emotion as much as girls are. And we know that that comes at a cost to them. And one of the things that came clear as I was working on the book is that for a lot of boys, especially around like middle school, as they're starting to consolidate a sense of masculinity, a lot of them decide that talking about feelings is a girl thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then say they're in a two parent heterosexual home, say it's only ever the mom who's actually talking about feelings and trying to have conversations with her son about feelings. It's so well-meaning, but it actually can reinforce exactly what the boy believes. Like, see, look, it's a girl thing. And so as I was thinking through like, how do we help boys develop emotional fluency? Really, really like the men in their lives, whether it's a dad or teacher, coach, you know, any variety of men need to be the ones talking about their own emotional experiences and then asking boys about theirs if we are going to work against the stereotype that feelings are for girls. That's such a powerful point, yeah. I I stumbled upon it. Like I I really had not thought about it until I sat down to work on this book. Yeah, the the other kind of amazing thing that jumped out to me about boys was around your discussion relating to how girls sort of mature uh, more quickly, like two years beyond boys at a certain you know stage of of adolescence, but then you have these people in the same classroom and boys being competitive and then just getting trounced by girls because they're more developed than the boys, and then what that does to boys' self esteem, you know, kind of telling them that they can't measure up to these girls, and then their inability to communicate their emotions and their feelings, particularly to a, a male role model. And you know what is that? You know how does that bear fruit later in life? Yeah, no, I um, that was a really interesting section of the book to write because I was looking at the data, and I'm also looking at the phenomenology of kids I care for, and I'm like, look at this, like sixth, seventh grade, because of the two-year jump on puberty, girls are crushing boys academically because they have a neurological advantage. But on top of that, and we don't talk about this very much, they're also taller, stronger, faster for the most part, like Mm -hmm. just on average. And so these poor, like, like I really, I feel like I could have called the section, like it's really hard to be a sixth grade boy, right? I mean, because they're getting beat at recess and then they come back into the building and they're getting beat in the classroom. And, you know, it levels out, it changes over time, but in that juncture, it's really hard to be a sixth grade boy. And of course the girls are developing. And it's also the exact same moment where we see sexual harassment begin in schools. Mm. And so I thought like, well, this is really interesting because I can absolutely understand why a sixth grade boy who's getting it coming and going and made to feel small and feeling competitive and wanting to consolidate a sense of masculinity might feel like, well, one route to that is I'm gonna take these girls down a few pegs, you know, and comment in bullying ways that are sexualized. And the thing that was so interesting about writing that section, I was like, how has nobody said this before? Like, mm-hmm. I, like I can't be the first person. And so I- Right, yeah. and understanding that behavior doesn't, doesn't mean that that's okay. Oh, no. Like that, you know, oh, no. and it, that, that's like the seed of misogyny it right is. then and there, like in a very patent obvious way. It's almost like those, the, those, gr- that, those two groups shouldn't be like in the same classroom being educated in the same place at the same time. It raises that question to be sure. But if we're not gonna go, if that's not the route, 
what we need to do, and this is the suggestion I make in the book, is we got to make sure that these sixth grade guys, seventh grade guys, especially who might be smaller, you know, just not on the front edge of puberty, mm-hmm. have ways to feel good about themselves, right? That they, we cannot just hope that they handle it well, right? That we, right. we need to find ways to put self-esteem in place. And another cardinal rule in psychology is self-esteem does not come from people telling you that you're good. It comes from doing things that you feel good about. And so there are things we can provide to middle school boys that, you know, where they can have meaning and they can have mastery that I would like to think might keep them from taking a, a wrong turn as they're trying to find ways to keep their self-esteem intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just more broadly, that idea of a parent like telling their kid like they're okay or they're doing good. Again, a well-intentioned thing, but not as effective as making sure that their kid is being put in positions that are challenging, not too challenging, where they have to toil and struggle a little bit and learn, get to the other side of it. That's what builds true self-esteem. Yeah not the affirmations of the parents who wanna you know, put a medal around every kid's neck and tell them that they're the most special thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I, again, back to kids' bullshit detectors. I mean, I think in some ways it can feel like an insult if the yeah. kid knows they did nothing and, and people are celebrating. The, the final thing I wanna explore with you before I let you go is, uh, is this very interesting uh, era that we find ourselves in um, around gender, as you call it, expansiveness, uh-huh. right? Like it does seem, you know, like I'm an old fuddy-duddy uh, that we're in a, in, a, in a period of time in which gender fluidity is, you know, something that, that is suddenly, if not ubiquitous, is certainly uh, a mainstream thing. And more and more young people are identifying in, New and unique ways, uh, and you know, there's a culture war raging around all of this, and I think it's disorienting for parents to try to understand it. Perhaps more disorienting for for young people, but it's certainly a fascinating phenomenon that is unprecedented, at least you know, in our lifetimes. Like I haven't seen this, and so I'm curious about, like, is this something that's always been there, but just there hasn't been a culture permissive enough to allow Mm. people to be comfortable expressing themselves in this way. Is this something different? Is what's driving this? Um, Help me make sense of what's going on. I don't know that I have answers. I mean, those are big questions that I think it's all so new, it's all happened so fast. I think we're trying to make sense of it. Um, I could tell you what I would watch out for though which is a single explanation or anyone who wants to make it simple, right? I think there's probably a lot of forces at work mm-hmm. that are changing this landscape. Um, and it is, you are right. I mean, there's an incredible polarization around it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, very, very vehement disagreement about how it should be addressed, how individual families should address it, what laws and policies should be around it. Um, as I watch the controversies around it unfold with people having very strong opinions like about whether we should, you know, how we should respond when a young person expresses that the gender they were assigned at birth doesn't feel like the one that's right for them. What I always fall back on is how we think as clinicians, which is there's nowhere in the care of young people when a young person comes up against 
a difficulty in the world or not fitting in in the world in a particular way that they've, you know, been assigned. There's nowhere that we feel that there's a single solution that is going to be right for every kid. So whether we're talking diagnostic stuff, like even something as comparatively simple as ADHD, Mm -hmm. right? And not that gender expansiveness is a disorder, but just thinking in terms of like when clinicians are called in to try to help somebody through something, you should go run screaming from the hills. Any clinician who's like, there's one way we do this, we do this every way for every single kid. So what I think as a clinician is, you know, for every kid and family going through this, they deserve what we would give every kid, what we should give every kid for any concern that arises, which is a very careful consideration of the specific circumstances of that child, that family, the forces around them, the resources available to them psychologically and otherwise should be married with clinical experience, clinical understanding to try to figure out what the path is most likely to be, you know, most useful path for that particular young person. Mm -hmm. And so as I hear these controversies unfold, I feel like anyone who tells you there's one way this should go down, I wouldn't trust that about gender expansiveness or anything about Mm -hmm. a kid. And then that's how I try to think about it clinically. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, policy disagreements about gender affirming care and there's legislation around, you know, this sort of thing. And then there's the whole debate around trans participation in sports and all of that. That's one thing, but then there's just the case of the kid who raises his or her or their hand one day and says, hey, you know, Mm -hmm. I wanna be this and I wanna be called this. Mm -hmm. And the parent trying to understand that Um, You know, every parent wants their child to be happy. Uh, You know, hopefully that child will be received with compassion and empathy and a a real, you know, true honest desire to understand. And in the appropriate case, you know, therapeutic protocols can Mm -hmm. get introduced, someone like yourself. Um, But I still think even with all of that, like from, and I'm, I'm asking you from the perspective of a parent, like how does the parent, you know, really uh you know show up for a kid like that with the kind of competing concerns of like compassion understanding love etc you you want the best for your child and like what is the responsible choice here particularly in the case of a child who's pushing for medical intervention etc you know like then it becomes like very real very yeah. quickly and and because i think there are a lot of people who are kind of contending with this right now there's a lot of you know confusion about like how to how to really you know walk this path yeah so there's a simple answer that is true which is we do have data showing that for parents to take an affirming stance will be the thing that most protects that child's mental health so what you're talking about being compassionate and attentive that the data bear out, like in terms of protecting the the mental health of that young person, that is the response that parents can bring that will make the biggest difference. Then the question of affirming, right, can then start to go into very complex territory about what that means. And especially when we're talking medical interventions. And what I wish every parent had access to, but they don't, is you know we have university-based clinics where there are experts who have seen, this may be your first gender expansive kid, they've seen hundreds of gender expansive kids. And 
the value of a good clinician is that they have a lot of information to work with in terms of making recommendations. And they can see your child against a backdrop of a lot of kids and a lot of outcomes and trajectories over time and offer some wisdom to parents about how this may likely unfold or what the options are or what the you know complexities are. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is in the immediate if we go by the data and we go by what protects kids' mental health, parents want to be supportive. In the um, difficult details of what that looks like, I would never want parents to feel alone or that they have to figure this out from scratch or that they would have to figure this out without the wisdom of people who spend a lot of time thinking about this and have worked with a lot of families through similar situations. Mm-hmm. Are there resources or websites for parents who find themselves in that situation? that are helpful? I think there are. I've got some resources that I mentioned in the back of the book that mm-hmm. um, around texts that are done. I myself am a big fan of university-based clinics. You know, the nice thing about universities is that they tend to be very, very up to date on research. They tend to bring a very decent balance to their consideration of anything. So, you know, I would say that, you know, for a lot of things, you know, you want to be where they are training people. And so as a function of training people, they are staying very much on top of what's going on. So what I would say is for a parent in this position, if they can access a university-based resource center, Mm -hmm. that will usually be the most reliable and the most current body of um, wisdom. Yeah, that's helpful, thanks. Um, As we round this out, I I guess the final question that I would have for you, with all of the kids that you that you treat and you know the many years that you've been in this and all the school you go and you speak all the time at these schools you're interfacing with parents and young people what do you think are the 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 low hanging fruit of like parental mistakes like the, the things you just see all the time and you're like haven't we gone through this like come on like what you know what's the one, like the one thing that you wish parents, like if they were to take away one thing mm-hmm. from this conversation, like stop doing that or maybe do a little more of this. I'm so glad you're asking. Here's what I would say. When kids come our way to tell us they are upset, which they often do, teenagers, especially talkers are good at this. Overwhelmingly, all they want and all they need is for us to listen and be empathic in response for us to really tune in. The way I I try to do this as a parent is if one of my daughters is telling me she's upset about something, I'll picture she's a reporter and I'm her editor Mm. and she's reading me the article of her distress. And that when she gets to the end of the article, I just have to produce the headline. Like I have to have listened so intently that I can distill it and summarize it and add nothing and give it back to her. So really all they want is that level of listening. And then truly, Rich, like the number one thing I say in my home more than anything is like, oh man, that stinks, right? Just just sitting and empathizing in response. That is overwhelmingly what teenagers are looking for. And so often, and I do this too, what they get instead is advice. Right? Like they tell us what's wrong and we're like, well, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, one of my younger daughter said to me, she said, mom, I can tell from the look on your face when I'm talking to you, when you stop listening, you've come up with the thing you're gonna say to me by way of advice and you're now just waiting for me to pause. Right, right. You're just like, okay, let me just wait until this is over yeah. and then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the zinger. Drop some wisdom on you. Yeah. So so what I would say is 
it's very rarely what they're looking for or what they want or need. And it usually actually um, ruins a moment that could be going quite a bit better. So curiosity plus empathy or just empathy is, I would say, overwhelmingly the most effective and also wanted response when teenagers come our way with their distress. Mm, Beautiful. I love it. Um, You are a gift. I think Mm. the work you're doing is so important and uh, I really appreciate you coming here today to share your wisdom and experience. You are the teen whisperer. (laughs) Such an honor, (laughs) such an honor to be here and with you. Thank you. Uh, um, Everybody pick up the emotional lives of teenagers. Also, Lisa has a podcast, Ask Lisa. Yep, The Psychology um, of Parenting. And what's great about that is that it's subject specific. So if you're a parent and you're like, God damn it, my kid did this one thing or like this thing happened, I just don't know how to deal with it. You can scroll through her catalog and chances are like, it's a question that's come up that she's talked through. And uh, I have relied upon this resource <laughs> successfully. <love> <laughs> so um, check that out. And uh, anything else you wanna point people to? Um, I have a website, drlisademore.com. And what I've tried to do is design it so that people can really find the resources they're looking for. I have it in six sections. um, And for every section, there are articles, podcasts, TV work I've done. Um, I want parents to feel like that website is actually like a catalog of utility for them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, and you are here in hell. Like you spoke at a school this earlier today. Mm-hmm. You came here, and now you have to go back <laughs> to that same school yeah, to like talk again. Yeah. Like this is what you do. This is what right? I do, and it's, it's <laughs> I am so so right, fortunate yeah. that this is what I get to do. Um, well, you're always welcome here, and uh, thank you again, and best of luck. And if I can be of service to you and your mission, please let me know. It's I really so great appreciate work. that. Thank you. Cheers. Peace. Lights. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste.